News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Little chat about this weather forecast going. Joining us right now is Anthony Farnell, who's Global News Chief Meteorologist. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on this morning. Now it's raining here, as we would expect, as a fall day in <laughs> Metro Vancouver looks like. But what can we expect this winter? Like, is it going to get cold, cold? Well, uh, I, I do think there will be cold and there will be snow even for uh, Vancouver, Victoria. Uh, I think the mountains are going to see just uh, an incredible amount of snow this winter. So uh, overall, good news. But uh, I know snow maybe a little less welcome for for you guys there and you've had tastes of it already it's come early and uh, i do think especially uh, later december and january as that cold really settles in uh, up in alberta and then it comes over the divide and there's going to be uh, there's going to be some some snowstorms to deal with wow what about what about in the rest of canada then is this going to be a typical winter would you say uh, typical winter. That is a uh, so what does that even hard mean? to get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what does that even mean? And uh, I always worry because, you know, everybody says, okay, 2020, is it going to just continue to be wacky, the weather, along with everything else? And uh, I, I do expect uh, it to be colder in the West, warmer in the East in relation to normal. So places like Ontario, Quebec, Atlantic Canada, likely seeing above normal temperatures for for much of the winter and uh, still a lot of snow. So it's one of those rare forecasts where I'm predicting above normal temperatures and snow Mm. in the East and then cold and still a lot of snow uh, for the West. See now, Anthony, I don't have snow boots. I have rain boots. But I don't have snow boots. So are you saying that I should might need to invest in a pair of those this year? Well, you, you, I guess you have two options. Because you're, you're in Vancouver, you can either just wait a day. Or <laughs> and then two go and, by with everybody it, else. <laughs> yeah, yeah or, or just wait for it to melt. and Because uh, uh, that's, that's what we're expecting, even though it, there is snow that I think will come. And uh, I mean, a 50-centimeter snow year is, is above normal. So that is definitely possible. We could see even much more than that. But uh, it's tough because it comes down to these individual storms. But I, I would suggest get out there, get some snow boots, and then maybe head to the oh. mountains if, if it doesn't snow in, in the use valley. Them. And use them somewhere else. Okay, Anthony, thank you so much for your time. All right, thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we've seen it happen in places like the state of Victoria and Australia. It's a very tough and hard lockdown that resulted in the elimination of COVID-19. From a peak of around 700 cases a day in the month of August, the state of Victoria has now gone 20 days without a new case. Now, next door to them in South Australia, they're about to do the same thing. It's a harsh lockdown to get to COVID zero, as it's called. And, you know, there's a vocal group of doctors and researchers who really support this idea that using incredibly aggressive short-term restrictions will help to completely eliminate the virus. So let's talk about the rationale behind this and how it works. Joining us now is Andrew Morris, an infectious disease specialist at Toronto Sinai Health and University Health Network. Andrew, thank you for being here. My pleasure. So do you like this idea of COVID zero? Well, I coined the term, but I want to clarify. Um, I don't believe that we're going to eliminate, in the truest sense of the word, uh, COVID-19. I I think that is unlikely without a a vaccine, to be honest with you. 
the concept, um, what we're proposing is an elimination strategy. Not the same as elimination, but you're aiming for it. The real difference is, unlike what pretty well every province, save for the Atlantic provinces, has pursued, is, you know, really tailoring our actions depending on the strain on the healthcare system. But what that has inevitably led to is really overwhelming our public health capacity and uh, at various spots throughout the country, uh, the healthcare system itself, and it's cost uh, unnecessary lives. So, and we've seen this in Europe as well. So what we're arguing for is you get the numbers as low down as possible, and then you don't tolerate the numbers uh, going above really a handful. Okay, so how do you make, how do you do that though? How do you get to that point? So, so the, the first step, of course, is going after it aggressively, and that includes aggressive public health measures, as you pointed out. Um, they don't necessarily have to be as, as brutal as they did in Australia. Um, different jurisdictions have done it differently, and you can do that with a combination of well-chosen um, measures that avoid uh, congregation. Um, that congregation can vary. It can be you know, your hotels and restaurants and bars, or it could be schools. I'm not a big fan of closing schools. Or it could be a combination of those. And you combine that with a really effective test, treat, uh, and isolation strategy. And so really supporting people so that they um, are incentivized and destigmatized from being tested. And really, when you do those things, um, you can drive those numbers down quite low rather quickly. It really depends on how high your starting point is. Mm-hmm. and how aggressive you want to be. The more aggressive you are, the faster the numbers will drop. But if you, if, you're, if you as a society can't tolerate such aggressive measures, you aim to do it on a slower uh, time period. Right. So we hear about like, oh, two weeks, but you're saying it could be even shorter than two weeks, depending on how aggressive we are. No. So it depends on your numbers. But in general, it takes somewhere between seven to 14 days to have the number of um, daily cases that you have. So if you're starting at 400 cases per day, seven to 14 days later, you'll be at 200 cases a day. And then another seven to 14 days later, you'll be at 100 and so on. Mm -hmm. It takes somewhere between five to seven cycles to really get it down to um, a manageable number. To be honest with you, in many parts of the country, they're already anticipating probably, you know, seven or eight weeks of fairly restrictive uh, communal practices because of um, the onslaught of COVID-19 already. And so incrementally, we're not adding much. The only thing we're really trying to do is get rid of a third wave. So we want to get rid of this wave as quickly as possible, but then drive it down so low that we won't have the inevitable third wave, which most of us expect is going to occur sometime around February. And what what do you think that third wave would look like if we don't do some of these things? So if we don't do that, the third wave is predictably going to be less than this wave and substantially more than the first wave. Um, In fact, what's been occurring around the country mirrors very closely to what happened to the U.S. um, with influenza. The time period is almost identical, and the size of the waves are so far, the first two waves, um, match almost perfectly. So if we anticipate that, then we can imagine that uh, sometime around February, ending sometime around late April, we would have that third wave. 
And so this strategy, it really, this is about no more waves, right? We don't want mm-hmm. to go past the second wave. You know, when you, when you say that, though, that it matches perfectly to what we have seen historically, it just makes you wonder, though, why we don't seem to learn our lesson in dealing with these things. Are we too reliant on thinking, oh, we'll find a way to fix this. Like, we'll, we'll get that vaccine. We'll do something like that. Yeah, I think we have uh, somewhat magical thinking. And as yeah. they often uh, like to say, we are the dumbest species that has the capability to speak. So, you know, I, I think you are entirely correct. And, and I think the vaccine story is a really important one here because uh, there is the promise of successful vaccines. I'm quite uh, convinced now that we will have successful vaccines, but we're not going to have those vaccines effective at least till the early fall. And it's possible, and, you know, I think it's uncertain at the moment, how much of the population will be able to have vaccinated before the fall. So we, we really don't want to see a fall wave occur again. Uh, that's uncertain whether there would be a fourth wave. So the investment that we put up front here, both in, in time and money, is going to benefit um, everyone, you know, from the public, businesses and vulnerable people um, today. And then moving forward, we'll have less deaths and we will avoid the economic hardships of a third wave and a possible fourth wave as well. Okay, so then when we talk about restrictions to help avoid a third wave, what do you think those restrictions look like? So I think almost certainly what you need are some kind of um, travel restrictions. You need to um, divide parts of your province, parts of your country where things are going great and you reduce, so when they have really low levels, you give them a fair amount of freedom. Um, they shouldn't be penalized if they're doing well and, um, and don't have many cases. On the other hand, in places where there are a lot of cases, again, you need to be fairly aggressive. And that could include, you know, anywhere that might involve, you know, um, curfews, it could involve, uh, you know, closing, as I mentioned, bars and restaurants. It could be limiting things to only essential services. It doesn't have to be that way. Again, I want to point that out. But most people would say, I would rather have a short period of really aggressive measures and then get us out of this as quickly as possible. Because the, the alternate, alternative really is what's, what we're kind of doing right now. And we're not really driving those numbers down very quickly, uh, at, if at all. And Mm -hmm. what we anticipate will happen is even before we're over this second wave, we're going to pretty well move right into a third wave. And, you know, that's that's the real problem. That's why it's so important to really try and um, encourage, motivate, mobilize, um, really inspire people to say, yes, we can do this. Let's get it down. And then we won't have to deal with the third wave. One can only hope. Andrew, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Andrew Morris, Infectious Diseases Specialist at Toronto's Sinai Health and University Health Network, talking about the idea, he termed this idea, the COVID zero, of tougher lockdowns to get those cases, just to not just bend that curve, but like force that curve down, shove that curve down. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, time for us to say good morning to Nikki Reitmeyer, and she has a story out there that she needs a little help with. Good morning, Nikki. 
Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I think this is kind of an interesting story. So essentially it goes like this. There was a woman in North Surrey and she recently moved into a new rental home. It's on 103rd A Avenue. And she said she was started snooping around and she said there's a carport and a garage in the carport. So she said, even though it was a little hard to get to, I, I grabbed a ladder and I climbed up on this high shelf and I was looking around and I saw boxes and boxes and boxes of old photographs. So she said they were meticulously labeled. Someone had obviously cared very much for these photographs. She started going through them and found that these were old family pictures, some dating back to the late 1950s. She said they're pictures of of family vacations, essentially fishing trips, hunting trips, pictures with children in the family and so forth. And she said she really wants to find out who these pictures belong to so she can return them to the rightful owner. Now, I'm, I'm not sure what her relationship is with the landlord, if she obviously hasn't maybe had success in reaching out through the landlord to find out maybe who the previous tenant was who lived there. But she said she wants to make sure that these these pictures don't just get lost, that they end yeah. up in the right hands. So you can go on the Surrey Now Leaders website, which is where I found this story, and they have a bunch of pictures posted. And maybe you recognize someone from, maybe you are someone who's yeah, in exactly. these pictures. Can you imagine how weird can, that would be? Wouldn't I thought that this I thought this morning too when I was looking at these photos and these are you know intimate old family pictures and I thought geez how weird would it be to suddenly see your picture in the Surrey Now Leader? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so go online uh, and maybe you'll recognize somebody or something in there to help. I would hate it. Oh, missing family pictures like that? Like oh, that's that's all we have at some point, right? To go look through our history. So mm, hopefully, I love my old family pictures. Exactly. Me too. Do you? You're too young for this, but oh, I'm going to date myself by saying this. I oh, guess I know I shouldn't have even started this, but do you remember slides? Oh, yes. Actually, I have a very funny side story about slides. Really? I don't know. Okay. So uh, my ex's grandmother, she enjoyed taking sl- slides of her family vacations and showing them to people. And of course, you know, the kids would be falling asleep, but she'd show them a thousand slides of her vacation to wherever. And one of the kids said, oh, geez, grandma, I really liked your slides. But of course, you know, how much did you really like the slides? But she said, oh, really? Oh, oh, thank you so much. So she thought to herself, well, I should get copies of these slides and give them to the kids because they obviously enjoyed them so much. So she, that's one not by cheap. one, took, well, you know, here's what she did. She thought she'd be clever and take a picture of the slide as it was projected on the wall, except she oh, used man. the flash. So when she gave him the pictures, <laughs> it was just a hundred pictures of her wall. <laughs> That's funny. But uh, that's really funny. I was trying to explain the concept of slides to my kids recently. And I used to say what a treat it was. Like when I was little, uh, you know, when we t- when my one of my uncles would take out the slide projector and put up the screen and we were all going to sit around at night and like look at pictures of old trips and family vacations and just old pictures. Like it was such a treat when I was a kid, but I Aww. somehow was not able to convey how, what a great thing that was and how fun. Now we just seem to take for granted looking at pictures, right? So much of our history is now pictures on our phone everywhere. Back then it was a real treat to do something like that. Absolutely. Gather the family around. Look at grandma's old boring pictures of some trip she was on that you weren't on at all. Yes. <laughs> well, suffer through. <laughs> I recently uh, last year had some converted. One of my uncles went through all his slides and kind of distributed oh, them. Oh. And so I had a little container of slides and they were of my mom and the only pictures that existed of my mom and dad's wedding. And so I was oh. very excited. I wanted to get these converted to pictures so I could show them to my kids. Uh, yeah, it is not 
cheap to take those to a store and say, I need to turn these into actual pictures. Uh, fortunately, I also got them done digitally. So now I've got it forever. Right. But uh, that's I know I bet you there's a lot of people out there who have boxes of slides somewhere in their garage, Nikki. It's interesting to know that it's not cheap to do that. I wonder now if you took a box of slides to, you know, some kid who was working at a the photo booth at some store, if they'd even recognize what you were dropping right. off. What the heck's <laughs> this? <laughs> oh, but they're in for such a treat. All right. Thanks so much for that, Nikki. That is our Nikki Reitmeyer. And remember, check out that Surrey Now Leader website uh, to help reunite those old photos with whoever might be a family member and might be missing them. Didn't even know, right? It would be great to be able to do that. This is Mornings with Simi. So once again, remember this afternoon, very important press conference coming from Dr. Bonnie Henry. There will be some changes to behavior they are hoping. And those new rules, those new health orders will definitely impact how we kind of move around the things that we do. So we will have, of course, complete coverage of that for you uh, coming up. And of course, we're looking ahead to the holiday season here as well, right? That We know that's going to be different. We keep saying that. But I think we're going to get some more concrete information about what that looks like. Maybe you're not going to walk around looking at Christmas light displays or going to the things that you would normally do. Some of them will still be there, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can go to them or, you know, participate in them the way that we used to. Some of those no more Christmas craft fairs or anything like that this year. But... There is something that you still can do, and it is the St. Paul's Foundation's Lights of Hope lighting celebration. And you know this one. It is a spectacular one every year. It's changing a little bit. So we're going to get you some details on that right now with the help of Brock Bozma, who's the Chief Development Officer of the St. Paul's Foundation. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so what are you, every year this is a spectacular light show, but I understand you're doing things differently this year. That's right. I mean, we're keeping a lot of the tradition the same, but we're adding some new things in order to, to uh, you know, obviously uh, celebrate, but do it in a safe way. So our goal this year, actually, $3.5 million. Uh, our event's happening tonight, but what we're doing is we're actually creating something called Hope at Home. Okay, what does this that mean? Is, this is something inspired by the 7 o'clock cheer, and uh, what we've done is we've created stars that people can actually bring to their home. So if you go on our website, uh, go on Lights of Hope and click at the Hope at Home button, you will be taken to a page where you can see a, a beautiful uh, takeaway star that you can order from us. And you can bring a little bit of Lights of Hope directly into your home in order to celebrate our frontline care workers. Oh, that is so nice. Now, I know you've been getting that word out on this. Brock, are people getting the word? Is there a lot of interest? There certainly is. There's a lot of people, you know, when we when we first thought of the idea, we were just trying to think of ways that people could continue to celebrate and enjoy that display. Um, and so, yeah, p- things are going quickly. So uh, if people want these stars, they need to go online and order them for sure. And we're hoping, uh, you know, our, our goal is that we'll see these stars in people's homes, uh, in their windows, on their porches, on their balconies. And every time we'll see one of those stars, we'll remember those frontline care workers and what they're what they're uh, supporting the, the the whole city with right now. Well, this is so nice because it means that we can all see the lights of hope this year. That's right. You know, we are having a bit of an internal competition about where we can get these lights of hope stars sent, uh, and people are actually sending them to loved ones uh, across the country. Uh, and even internationally in order to say, you know, I'm thinking of you at this time, and here's a way that you can remember me. This is so nice. Okay, so where can people get more information? 
So the best place to go is the web. If you go to our website, lightsofhope.com, and then just look at the top bar, there's uh, Hope at Home. And there's also information about our celebration tonight there. Okay, that sounds like so much fun. And we should mention here, Brock, this is becoming a critical time, right, for the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation, because you've got some big plans in the next couple of years. We do. We do. As people know, we're building a brand new hospital. Uh, It's going to be a state-of-the-art 21st century uh, research center and acute care hospital. And wow, it's it's going to change uh, it's going to change the landscape of healthcare for all British Columbians. All right, even more of a good reason to get involved in this, Brock. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. That is Brock Bosma, who is the Chief Development Officer of the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation, talking about the lights of hope. Now, you've usually seen them every holiday season, right? They're spectacular on Burrard Street there. Not doing it this year. They don't want people to gather. And that's a great example that they are setting. But go to lightsofhope.com, check out what they're doing, get one of their takeaway stars, put it in your window so that you can see, hey, oh, I get what they're doing. They're also part of the Lights of Hope celebration this year. It's a great idea. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, if there's one thing that we have really learned in all of this pandemic situation is that we need to do a better job when it comes to long-term care in this country. And hopefully it will look different, substantially different when this is all said and done with. Because the pandemic really highlighted huge flaws that we have in our care home system. And this morning, a group is going to Parliament to demand that Ottawa set a better national standard for that care. Joining us now is Vivian Stamatopoulos, who teaches at Ontario Tech University and specializes in family caregiving. Vivian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me about this trip to Ottawa today. Uh, Well, you know, it's really important to these families. We really wanted to, well, first and foremost, honor all of those who have lost their lives over the course of this pandemic. So we're going to be laying out thousands of empty shoes across the lawn of Parliament to, to really honor those lives lost. But then secondly, really to push for national standards, because as we have seen, we failed our seniors in care. I mean, your province probably did the best. But when you look at the whole, we really failed our our seniors in long term care. So what kind of national standards are we looking for? What are we talking about here? Well, I think we need, you know, things like better wages and staffing levels and ratios, which we know. Um, And that was something that, um, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry did right at the get go was really um, increase the wages and provide permanent, uh, you know, full time work to all of the workers, which and banning inter-facility movement, which is super important. Uh, Stricter penalties, and um, I'm all for criminal charges. Our our Prime Minister had alluded to that in his throne speech for bad actors and better inspection processes. But then obviously uh, what's really important is a higher standard of care. So we have, you know, a basic 4.1 being the minimum level of care per resident per day that all experts agree upon. And really it should be somewhere higher to reflect, uh, you know, rising acuity of these seniors. But... And then last but not least, public not-for-profit delivery is really going to be important in the years ahead because we've seen the for-profit homes have significantly worse outbreaks and um, have just failed the COVID-19 test. Now, what's it like in Ontario and Quebec now? Because, of course, in the early part of the pandemic, we heard the stories, right, about how they had to send the military in to help out. And that was awful. What's it like now? It's still a disaster because our province didn't learn lessons and they did. They wasted the summer not safeguarding the sector like they needed to. And we were warning them all along 
that they needed to follow the model, frankly, of BC, with one exception. One exception that really irks me with your province is how you've handled the visitation. You have effectively confined your seniors in pandemic prisons. And I hear from families all the time, BC families who reach out to me in Ontario, because we fought for months and we, we thankfully secured caregiver access. So up to two people who can go in during outbreak all the time, visit in the actual facilities, in the rooms with your loved ones. You can touch them. We can do this safely. We have the evidence. We've done it. So I really do not understand what Adrian Dix is doing and Dr. Bonnie Henry with this very shameful decision that they are still, you know, enacting. Well, Vivian, you're not alone on that. A lot of people ask those questions too. But when it comes to national standards, can this is something that the Trudeau government talked about. Why hasn't anything been done? Well, this is the thing, right? The conversation started and then apparently there was supposed to be a set of meetings and we were all waiting for what happened and then it went quiet. And we know that there's always there's always going to be pushback when there's some sort of federal and provincial uh, relationship when it comes to, okay, we're going to tell you what to do, Um, especially with Quebec. There's been a reticence with that kind of relationship. But we have to do something. I mean, this is ridiculous. And the fact that the conversation stopped when we are continuing to see this population devastated is, is shameful. We need to pick this up. This is why we want to keep, continue to put the heat really on both the prime yeah. minister and all of the premiers. They have to get together and they have to do something. Okay. So do you have any meetings scheduled today? Uh, like, what are you hoping to get out of this protest? Well, we're hoping to get some meetings, hence the location of choice. We know Jagmeet Singh is going to be speaking, and he's been very, um, you know, on the side of really progressive developments when it comes to long-term care, which I'm very happy about. Um, and we've seen a lot of really good plans come out from, from the NDP governments in particular. Um, so we're just hoping that we really get the Prime Minister's attention and we really get the ball rolling on resuming those conversations and getting an actual plan in place. Because they have a lot of power here. I mean, you know, our prime Mm -hmm. minister has the funding. All he has to do is tie very clear strings of accountability and standards to that funding that is already going out to provinces. So just create the rules that the provinces have to abide by in order to continue getting that money. I don't understand what the delay is. Is this the most important time to do this, right? Because if things get back to normal next year or whatever, do you feel like it's going to fall off the radar if we don't do this now? 100%. 100%. The news cycle forgets very quickly. And we have to take advantage of this moment right now because never before have we seen such a a disgusting light shined on on this sector, which has been plagued by problems for decades. This is not new, right? The pandemic has shone a light on everything that was secretly happening and a lot of people didn't know about until they have lived experience with those homes. And then it changes them. I know a lot of people, as you say, have that experience and it's been a terrible experience having a loved one in that situation. What would you recommend they do? You mean in the short term? Well, can they help when they hear you speaking so passionately about this? Can they help? Should they write letters? Like, what do they they do? Absolutely. The pressure helps. I've been able to, you know, in the early days when confinement was an issue and and, and visitation was, was, you know, slim to none, we put a lot of uh, heat on some homes publicly and that tended to help. So, you know, the news media really needs to get in there and shine a light on how difficult some of these very ageist policies are for these seniors in care. And when you actually ask them, as your BC seniors advocate did, they tell you, I'd rather die, I'd rather die of COVID than die of this isolation. And even our, well, you know, and this is the thing, we've been ignoring the voices of our seniors this whole pandemic. Talk to them. Listen to what they want. They do not want to live their final days like this. I mean, what is yeah. wrong with us when we have gone to a place where we have effectively imprisoned these seniors and we think it's okay? I mean, everyone needs to stand back and give themselves a shake 
because this is an abomination what is happening to these seniors. And we can safely visit them and actually provide a dignified end of life without locking them up in their final days. All right, Vivian, thank you so much for your time and good luck today. Thank you. You too. That is Vivian Stamatopoulos, who's a teaching professor at Ontario Tech University. She specializes in family caregiving and is part of this uh, group going to Ottawa this morning uh, to have a demonstration to put put these shoes out there to show Ottawa that they need to come up with a national standard of care for long-term care homes. And I know that's an idea that many of you out there say, yes, long time coming, because so many of us have a loved one or know somebody working in or in a long-term care home. And the situation, just it's just not getting better for them out there, right? That isolation, the trouble, all of that needs, there needs to be some national standards on that. If you want to weigh in, send me at CKNW com. This is Mornings with Simi. We need to make sure that those who want to come to British Columbia must only do so if it is essential for their business or their well-being. So that's Premier John Horgan yesterday calling on the federal government to impose restrictions on non-essential travel between provinces. As soon as I heard that, I thought, how would you how would you enforce this? Like, it just sounds like it would be a logistical nightmare. So joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Valerie Crooks, who's a Canada Research Chair in Health Service Geographies and a professor of geography at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Crooks, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. What did you think when you heard about this idea? I think it's an idea that didn't surprise me in terms of um, something coming out from a provincial leader. I think that uh, uh, leaders in the public health community as well as in the political communities are looking at all kinds of strategies that can be undertaken in order to protect the health of the public and to reduce people's exposure or potential risk of developing COVID-19. And so do you think this is something that all provinces should kind of look at to try to control their numbers? Well, I think it's an interesting discussion. When you look at what was discussed uh, yesterday from um, John Horgan, he was talking about the need to have harmonization really across the country with regard to the messaging for non-essential travel. Um, And part of his appeal was to Justin Trudeau, but part of his appeal was even thinking more broadly in terms of how do we harmonize that messaging. And if you actually think about it, that's what people are actually looking at at the household level. That's what people want is transparency and clear messaging. And so it's not surprising to think that actually at the national scale, there's a desire for that. So logistically, how would that work? Would it work? That's a great question. And uh, something that has a lot of complexity to the answer, because not only are we going to have to think about logistically or practically, how does that work in terms of regulating the travel flows, but a second really important element is going to actually be the messaging with regard to what constitutes uh, travel that is necessary and how do we determine and who makes that determination and also who is actually at a point where they're going to be checking on that. So, for example, if I feel that I have necessary travel, so, for example, my parents live in Ontario, if there's a family emergency that I think constitutes travel that actually is necessary, mm-hmm. um, is it going to be the person, for example, at the Air Canada or WestJet counter when I show up at the airport? Or is it going to be uh, at the point of purchasing my ticket? Um, and that's an example of, uh, you know, flight travel, where there are people with whom we check in before we fly when transporting ourselves 
uh, between provinces or within the province by ground, it's it's very different. So, for example, I live in Maple Ridge. If I want to go into downtown, there is no real natural checkpoint, for example, where I would actually have to check in with regard to uh, making any sort of informational exchange regarding my intent in the same way if I opt to leave the Fraser Valley. So, you know, the actual regulation of this becomes very challenging. And this is the same kind of discussion that we've seen happen provincially with regard to mask wearing, where the messaging is very clear from Dr. Henry with with saying, you know, it becomes very challenging to have any enforceable measures because who does the enforcement and how do we actually sort of enforce things along the lines of mask wearing? So then it comes down to the public actually having a desire to have a goodwill with regard to minimizing the spread of the virus and taking heed to guidance with regard to um, travel-related suggestions. Right. So that's really what it comes down to is to put something in place and hope that the public will go along with it, right? Because they use the example of the maritime provinces, and I think, well, sure, it's easy to regulate people going in and out of the maritime provinces. There's just not as many routes in and out as between, say, B.C. and Alberta. Not only that, but we're talking about, you know, as, as a geographer, one of the concepts that we talk about and teach right in our first year education here at Simon Fraser University is the issue of scale, the size, you know, the scale of, of a policy, the scale of a province. There's a very different scale, a very different geography when we're talking about the maritime provinces compared to when we're talking about British Columbia or the Western provinces. So, you know, this scale, the magnitude of implementing those kinds of measures. Also, you know, we have a context of rurality and remoteness here in British Columbia that extends across all of the Western provinces, as well as into Quebec and Ontario, that doesn't exist in, you know, a province that is the scale of Prince Edward Island, for example. So even trying to do things like restrict the flow of travel within British Columbia becomes very challenging. There are many communities in the north, for example, where their major port or their major point of transit for major kinds of purchasing, as well as even health service activities, will be Edmonton as opposed to coming down south into Vancouver, um, especially throughout the winter. And so, again, this creates a lot of complexity with thinking through the types of harmonization that's going to be required, as well as what are the reasonable exemptions, who is exempt and what those bases are. But in general, I think what individual or per, uh, every household in British Columbia, as well as across Canada, is looking for is clear guidance with regard to coming to an understanding as to what their role is. And this is a conversation, you know, yes, I'm a professor, but I'm also just a person who lives in Maple Ridge. And when I'm in the grocery store, I hear when people are standing in line, a desire to, for example, undertake what's in the best interest of the public. But they need that that guidance that comes with the clear decision making. So, for example, let's say that we do move to having some um, measures put in place with regard to our movement. I could see, for example, decision trees as being important kinds of public health tools around communicating what this would look like. So that way, if I do have something that I think constitutes a family emergency that would result in me driving to Alberta or flying to Ontario, I can consult some sort of decision-making tool that can help me in assisting with understanding, should I go? What are the implications of my movement? And also, how do I move safely? And these are the key questions that people are grappling with. Right. So from what you're saying there, though, too, you do believe that if they said, listen, we don't want you to do this, it's important to help to help like fight COVID-19. You think that 
enough people would just go along with it without maybe having to come harshly down and enforce it. Well, you know, exactly. This is this is actually part of it, which is that are we at a point in the pandemic where we can see the numbers that are growing uh, in the Fraser Valley, in the Lower Mainland, and other parts of British Columbia, as well as other parts of the country, where um, just by virtue of being in that context, people want to do things as well that are going to minimize right. their own exposure, as well as that are in the best interest of the public. You know, many of those who are trying to make these decisions themselves are business owners themselves are people who have family members in long-term care Mm -hmm. um, residential facilities. So there are so many people that are looking to do what's in the best interest of the collective. And of course, there are always exceptions to the rule. But if if people are looking for that, then what we need is transparency. So Mm -hmm. if we can understand the basis for the guidance that is given, and also if we can be given that guidance in a way that is um, able for us to transfer it into our everyday context. So that's why I was saying, for example, things like decision-making trees, where we can literally see go left or go right. This is this this is a no. This would be an advisable circumstance under which you would want to travel. Make sure to consult what's happening with regard to any quarantine measures in your destination. Um, You know, if we go down the pathway of thinking about enforcement, then it creates so much complexity because... A, who does this enforcing, who's trained to do it, also what are the points at which it happens, and what are the implications of that enforcement. Dr. Crooks, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, one area where Vancouver has really stood out when it comes to attracting talent over the last five years is the technology sector. According to real estate giant CBRE, Vancouver added almost 30,000 tech jobs in just the past five years. Joining us now is CBRE's Vancouver Managing Director, Jason Kisselback. Jason, thanks for being here. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. What does that tell us about Vancouver's uh, strengths in this area? Yeah, so the report is uh, an analysis of the labor market conditions, uh, cost, and quality for for highly skilled tech workers, Um, and it's weighted on uh, things that are more important like concentration of labor and the the cost of the talent. So what it's telling us is that we have a a high concentration of highly skilled workers, uh, and they're available at pretty competitive cost when you look at it relative to other major markets around North America. Is that why we have seen some of these investments as well, companies like Amazon and Microsoft coming to town? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that kind of grows on itself. So as we develop uh, more skilled labor, those type of companies want to locate here and attract that talent. And then that creates uh, an even bigger labor pool as they um, you know, employ those people or they bring in some of the workers from other regions. Uh, and then those people you know, continue with the companies or they branch off, start their own ventures. So you know, I think long term, this, this bodes very well. So then, Jason, was there something specifically that was done at a provincial level, at a local level that made it easier to attract the talent? Uh, definitely. Um, from a national provincial level, the, um, the immigration policies are working in our favor. Um, the intangibles of the livability of our city, the geography are really working in our favor. Um, and then at the more local level, um, you know, we're getting really good scores from our um, educational institutions on the talent that they're producing um, through their uh, programs. So does that bode well then for the future? 
Absolutely, yeah. As I was saying, I think this is a something that kind of grows on itself and we see this as a more of a jumping off point where um, you start to build the labor, then you attract the companies uh, coming here, they employ and develop the labor further and that it just continues to grow on itself. So I think this is a very exciting thing for for the long-term future of uh, Vancouver as a city. Right. When you look at it though, uh, what do we need to keep doing, right? Because I'm sure other cities, other jurisdictions are also trying to be competitive in this regard. Yeah, um, I mean, definitely keeping those favorable uh, immigration policies will uh, be something that's very important for us. Um, And then continuing to, I guess, just nurture this, whether it's through our schools or providing incentives for these companies to come here. Um, We just want to kind of stay, you know, open for business, as they say. All right. So is there like the schools, is it tough to, for them to try to keep up with talent as well? Because I would imagine the technology keeps changing. Is it essential for them to kind of work with these companies to see what's needed? Yeah, I think that's uh, it's a, a good thing that um, they can continue to do, which is be in touch with uh, the employers to say, you know, uh, where are their gaps in um, the type of talent that we're producing and how can we work with you right. uh, and maybe develop some of those, you know, co-op programs and things like that. You know, a couple of years ago, though, even a year ago, Jason, we would have been talking about, oh, geez, where are we going to find the space, right, for yep, more companies yep. to do that? How much has that changed? Not as much as you'd think. Really? Um, you know, there was, yeah, there's a lot of uh, discussion around that uh, through the summer months and a lot of companies um, putting a market, uh, sorry, space on the market for sublease. But um, our vacancy rate for downtown office space is at 4.6%, which is uh, extremely low and still tied for um, the top spot for lowest vacancy rates in North America. So, um, yeah, not, not as much as you would you'd think. Really? Because like, like you you hear, kept hearing about how, oh, this is going to change the market. There'd be so much availability. So do you yep. think companies are just kind of holding on to it right now, waiting to see what happens? Yeah, I mean, I think the news that we had recently, the positive news around the vaccine is the light at the end of the tunnel. And people are saying, you know, we need to just uh, hold on um, through the near term, whatever it is, six to nine months and, and get to the end of this thing. And um, ideally, there's going to be some pent up demand because, um, you know, decisions have been pushed off. Right. So it seems like, yeah, people are just are holding on right now. So going to the workplace is not dead yet. No, and, and um, you know, you look at these, uh, the tech companies, they're less um, sensitive, I guess, to the, the current issues. I don't want to dismiss it. I mean, obviously, we've had um, some negative things happen and some industries that are hurt, but um, the tech companies seem to be taking a more long-term mm-hmm. view, and they're not taking the position that, you know, we're not going back to work ever. They're more thinking, well, how do we, um, you know, plant a a flag here for the long term and, um, you know, make a strategic decision. Hmm, Interesting. All right, Jason, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's Jason Kisselbach, who's the CBRE's Vancouver Managing Director. They are, of course, the big real estate company. And according to their annual tech talent ranking, uh, Vancouver did very, very well. We added almost 30,000 tech jobs in the past five years. More coming, he said, and more companies continue to be interested in investing their time here. Really interesting that there's not as much office space available as people thought there would be earlier this year, that companies are still kind of holding on to it to wait and see what happens.